For those of you with sensitive ears, this episode contains some spicy language. So be warned, explicitives to come, and many of them. From the kitchen table, this is Gate Close Panic. Recording um, seems to have that effect on most people. Yeah. So it's kind of a long one this week. Clara Sankey is my guest and she's just taken on the role of Stella Prize Manager, which as a literary dork makes me a little bit overexcited. She's from Adelaide and we met up while she was back for Writers Week a few weeks ago. Before Stella, she was over in the States at SF MoMA. She's been at a bookstore at McSweeney's in social work, project managing at a university is nuts. And now that I'm saying it, I realize why it's such a long episode. As much as her story is really interesting, I think what I liked most about talking to Clara was just the talking. Some people have this keen ability to express themselves in a way which is totally spontaneous, but feels expansive, like they're able to hold a huge story in their mind and tell it in all of its rich details, while still bringing you into it and listening when you're talking. Quite late in the episode, Clara talks about talking. She calls it her soft skill and explains that it's something she struggles to consider as a real professional asset. But as she rightly comments, you can teach most jobs, but what makes people want to spend day after day at work with you, you can't really teach that. The Stella shortlist has just been released and you can follow them on various social platforms to keep up to date on the amazing work Australian women writers are doing. I'll be back at the bottom of the episode with a tiny bit of housekeeping, but until then, enjoy. Just kind of speak at your normal level. Okay, it's a really good mic, so you don't need to worry about that stuff. (laughs) With you, wherever you end up. Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm going to be too busy and stressed to be able to do this in London, but... Maybe it's once I've settled in. I really do think it's a skill. You sound incredibly good. Um, and I hope it is recording. Keep this, Saren. You sound great. <laughs> and you totally keep going with it. It's, you know, not everyone can do radio and you sound very podcast yeah, Thank you. It's yeah. also a really good way to be with people. Totally. I'm serious. loving this. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Um, okay. So when you're ready, introduce yourself so just who you are. And what you do. And then I'll ask you a question. We'll go from there. Sounds good. Uh, my name is Clara Sankey. And at the moment, I am the Stella Prize Manager. Uh, and I'm an editor and occasional writer. Nice. Perfect. Okay, cool. So um, just starting back as far as you feel is relevant, mm-hmm. when did you first start to think about work, whether it was a profession or just a way to make money? Yeah. Um, lots of people start in school, but don't feel that you need to. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. I am definitely someone, uh, and I think this has sometimes been to my favour and sometimes not been to my favour, but that gets super excited 
about everything um, so that if someone tells me something they're working on, I'm like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. You're a biochemist. How did you do that? Yeah. So um, <laughs> I'm not a biochemist, so uh, it doesn't always work. But um, So I think from a really early age, I was interested in like a very kind of broad spectrum of um, jobs, and meaning that like for the longest time I was really sure after watching the movie Contact, which is like a kind of a deep cut, 97 or something with Jodie Foster, <laughs> but I was like, oh, I'm just going to be um, an astronomer. That sounds incredible. Yeah. And I kind of had that in the back of my head until grade 10 when I actually had to do my first like physics class and I hadn't done one before and it was so hard yeah. and I was I couldn't believe how hard it was I sort of um you know there's sort of a conceptual mind that you need to have for physics which is very different from the kind of you know I grew up certainly with like very artistic parents and mm. with less of a science background mm. so um yeah it was a kind of shock and it kind of, I do remember suddenly realizing, like, oh, thank God, I definitely can't do this. Like, yeah. I'm going to have to figure something else out. This is not going to work. Um, so I definitely was, like, um, my mum is a visual artist, and I, we spent a lot of time as kids creating art and doing stuff like that. Um, they're obviously, I'm pointing to a huge bookshelf, um, big reader, so we were, like, reading a lot. Yeah. So that was always sort of what I was most comfortable with. I read a lot, I wrote a lot of stories when I was young, and so I don't think I fully understood that there could be a career doing that necessarily, so it didn't really seem like an option. I didn't feel smart enough or feel confident enough that I would be a professor necessarily. You know, I didn't kind of think of that route as like an academic, yeah. even though my mum is an academic, um, but I definitely gravitated towards the arts in general. So I was always interested in film, writing, those kind of areas yeah. and, and visual art as well yeah so yeah that was sort of my first interest in sort of what I would end up doing so following yeah. my kind of realization that I wasn't going to become an astronomer which is also a a lot of math and kind of very solitary and I'm a pretty um uh I like being around a lot of people yeah. so I, I just don't think it would have been right for me anyway yeah. um I definitely sort of started transitioning to imagining what my life would be like in the arts mm -hmm. I think I sort of was thinking about arts management kind of positions when I was finishing school. So, um, so I'll jump straight into university. When I graduated, uh, my uh, <laughs> actually my dad convinced me to do a like double art and science degree, and I did uh, two no maybe like one chemistry class, uh, and was like I like I'm definitely not good at this. And I mean I did a lot. I actually did a science heavy kind of last five subjects that you do for year 12. I, it's funny, I don't think of my parents as being like super pushy at all. They're kind of like, do whatever you want to do. And they value highly um, creativity and artistic practices, which I think will come into this mm. conversation later because I actually think it's a really big part of my story. Um, but yeah, he was like, you should just do everything and do science and then you can figure out what you want. To be fair, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Sure. So it was kind of like, yeah, I'll just like try everything. Very quickly, I, I mean, I dropped out within a week, and it obviously, university is so exciting because suddenly you're like in control of what you want to do, and I just could drop it. I didn't exactly. have to feel guilty. I was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Um, and I actually ended up transitioning. Um, I started at Adelaide University, but I transitioned to Flinders mm -hmm. because at that time, Adelaide didn't have any film program at all. And I was actually really interested in film. Yeah. So I ended up sort of schlepping up to Flinders. Um, yeah, taking the drive up from here to uh, I'm in the western suburbs. Uh, to do my degree there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How was it? 
So interestingly, and I find this, people in Australia feel a lot more comfortable, uh, not even comfortable, but sort of are a lot more accepting and understanding of the way I did my degree, whereas I feel like um, I've been living in the States for the last seven years, mm -hmm. and this always seems pretty out of character or out of common practice over mm -hmm. there. I actually did my four-year degree over six years. Um, I was all, I've been working since I was like 15 at coffee shops, mm -hmm. um, usually, yeah, like hospitality jobs. I worked at the Governor Heinmarsh, did bartending for a long time, um, something that I was like not like not good at like I didn't really go out at all when I was younger so when we got like when I started working I was like maybe 19 I got a job at the Gov and didn't know like any drink how to do anything like I was very green like someone ordered a CC and coke and I literally brought back like a glass of coke and a packet of CC chips Aww. and he was like yeah I want Canadian club and I was like oh, right that makes sense so I was very <laughs> green like I definitely was not yeah, that world seems very distant to me now, but um, but yeah, so when I started um, university, I, really, I did it for about six months, mm -hmm. and it was that thing of like, suddenly you don't have to go, and I just suddenly was like, I don't know if I'm ready to do this, I yeah. really don't know what I'm doing, it was an arts degree, so it's incredibly broad. Yeah. Um, I do think university just didn't feel like what I expected it to feel like. I think I left school, and school had been such a, you know, it was a pretty high achieving student mm. and took it really seriously, probably a bit too seriously in hindsight, mm. given that I sort of strove for like a ridiculously high TR and my TR for my arts degree was like 60 to get yeah. I was kind of like, why did I work so hard? Yeah. I was so stressed out. I was yeah. crying all the time about it. Um, so uh, yeah, so I think I really needed a break after that. So I ended up kind of doing a lot of jobs. Yeah. So I was working at a coffee shop. I worked at the Gov, I also worked at a law firm as a law clerk at the same time. So I think I had three jobs and was doing uni part-time wow. in order sort of to save up. And then I went and traveled for a while. Yes. And then, yeah, I was kind of doing uni part-time yeah. a lot. The last sort of, I can't even remember, like 2008, I actually ended up spending a year in America living in um, Colorado. My dad's from the States. Mm -hmm. So I moved out there. And this was, it's funny to think back at it now, I definitely was like, I really love short story writing, I want to go to like live in Colorado and stay with my grandpa, who I, who's very crotchety, but I actually really get along with, and like write short stories. And I was actually really obsessed with like the writing of Annie Crew and sort of um, stories set in the Midwest yeah. about sort of like country living, and cowboys and that kind of stuff in that landscape. And where we were living in uh, Colorado, to Fort Collins, really is quite close to the border of Wyoming, so I did drive up there a few times. But money, I mean, my parents, I come from an incredibly privileged background, very lucky, but I also, you know, my parents really believe in us working and having our own jobs and being pretty self-sufficient. So I was there for maybe like a couple of weeks and was like, I'm going to need a job, yeah. <laughs> not making any money. So I ended up working at the equivalent of... I'm trying to, I mean, it's like the equivalent of like a food land, sort of, but like an organic-y one. Yep. But it was still kind of food, a little whole foods. Um, <laughs> and I was slicing deli meat for like $8 an hour. Oh. And the only reason I even, I know, and the only reason I even stuck it out was I was like, had this end date of, at the end of December, I think, meeting my brother in Hawaii and we were going home together because he was traveling around with his partner. Yep. And I look back at it, I mean, it was awful. I didn't, there was like no positive thing. I mean, I met a guy and sort of fell in love there and that was lovely. But in terms of like work and like creative career, like total useless. I mean, I think I had a panic attack when I got home. I was like, how did I just do for like seven <laughs> months? I was like, I didn't write at all. I was barely reading. I don't know what I was doing. It was yeah. sort of a bit of a waste of time. But um, I came back from that in 2000 and 
nine, I think. Yeah. And that was when I did my honours year. Um, and took that quite seriously and ended up doing my thesis on like documentary film, um, which I became really interested in and like creative, uh, not creative, like critical literature. Yeah. I, interestingly, I didn't like, that's the one thing that I feel is certainly different for me. And I would even venture to say like different from Australians to Americans to a certain degree, Mm. like Americans come away usually. And again, this is privileged Americans that get to go to like my schools and I will say a lot of the people I interacted with went to like very nice like private colleges right. and Ivy Leagues. You come out of university with this like set of best friends that you guys like went through this massive transition. Most people are leaving home when they go to college. So it really is like a very sort of like big journey mm-hmm. into kind of adulthood yes. where you separate from your parents. And I mean, I lived at home when I went to school, you know, it was like a, not a big separation, mm-hmm. but I think my honors year was the year that I became friends with two people. I sort of do keep in contact with and We sort of went through together and we were all interestingly sort of, I mean, semi mature age students. I mean, I think one of them was in her thirties, but me and the other guy were like, in our sort of mid twenties. We were slightly older than everybody else. Yeah, but it makes a difference at that point. Huge change maturity just from sort of the first three years out of high school oh. is radical. It's crazy, and I really do think I am so glad that I waited and did it later yeah. because I really got so much out of it. And yes. it was the thing that, at least for me, that, I mean, you finished high school, you go in and did you do the readings? You're like, probably not. I got drunk all weekend. Like, it was awesome. And I sort of came back and was sort of like aghast at going into class and people being like, yeah, you're doing the readings. And you're like, why are you here then? Like, yes. It yeah. won't, the class doesn't function if, like, if the two, there's only 12 of us, if none, no one read anything. So, um, but I was super understanding because I was like, you should just like take time off and like go do your own thing and figure out what you really want to do. Yeah. So that felt really positive in that sense. I definitely felt like um, way more mature and like really excited to learn. Mm. Like I really wanted to be there. Mm. Um, having said that, also super stressful and I cried my way through it. And I also want to say, and I don't know if I should say on this podcast for young people listening, uh, I handed in every single university assignment late. I am like terrible. This should never be listened to by any job prospects. <laughs> what I will say, I never got docked for any of them. I always managed to talk my way out of them. So I don't think wow. that's a different skill set. Maybe not a good one, but I will say that that um, is not something I'm proud of. But it was and remains like one of my biggest issues is sort of um, trying to, I think personal projects kind of get them done on time. I would yeah. say like at work it's a bit different, but. I did cry my way through my thesis where I was like printing it on the day of being like, oh my God, this is so stressful. Was it, was it perfectional? Totally. And it always is. I am a horrible procrastinator. Yeah. I am terrified of making mistakes. Yeah. One thing that has been really interesting with my partner that we talk about a lot mm. is the different ways in which we were raised. Mm. Um, and this has come up again recently because my brother is back doing his master's mm-hmm. in like genetic science. So like I... Every single assignment I did throughout college, throughout high school, throughout university, my parents like read over and edited, like every single thing. Yeah. Yeah. So you will have that experience for sure. Mm -hmm. So like I couldn't even do anything without them like approving it essentially. Mm -hmm. And again, they're lovely. They thought they were being incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. What I think it ended up doing, like the biggest criticisms that I had throughout university from um, lecturers Mm -hmm. was like, tell me more about what you think about it. Like you've clearly research this very well and you have like a lot of quotes from other people and you know what kind of uh the landscape is of this particular issue that you're exploring but like i'm not hearing much from what you 
like think about it. Yes. And I think that that is something that I've always really struggled with and I think it kind of was a bit exacerbated by them trying to be, my parents trying to be helpful but like actually probably not allowing me to kind of A, make mistakes and sort of actually have conversations about what those mistakes mean mm-hmm. and B, sort of really be able to like dig in and kind of work out what I wanted to say about things. I ended up kind of saying a lot what they wanted to yeah. say, yeah. which again, as we go on, like, I think plays into a lot of the trajectory of my career up until now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that in contrast with my partner, who was the first in his family to go to school, who, um, at school, mean university, who, like, never shows anyone anything before he submits it, which is insanity to me. Yeah, like, yeah so, like, my brother's in school right now, yeah. and I edited every single one of his essays. Yes. Now, I'm an editor now. I love doing it. Like I, And then when it's, especially because it's not, like, fiction, a lot of the stuff that I usually work on is science, so it's, like, you can be super removed and ask really interesting questions that yes. he wouldn't have thought of. Yeah. But, it, you know, see, my boyfriend watching me do this for my brother he was kind of like why isn't he just doing himself yes. and he was, I was like because everybody helps each other all mm. like who doesn't do this mm. so I think it was really interesting to suddenly realise that what obviously was a common experience between you and I but actually isn't as I kind of thought it was everybody has that Yeah, and they definitely don't and I do think I would say the like flip side is my partner like really struggles to ask for help when he wants to do things because he's so used to doing them himself yes. but I think the other side is like I'm terrified to kind of not have someone check something before I send it off. As am I, absolutely. Yeah. I think professionally, especially, yeah. I will basically never submit anything that I haven't had somebody else that I respect the kind of capabilities of mm-hmm. look over it and just make sure that I haven't for some reason had a brain leak and totally failed to write something of merit. And usually, corrections-wise, it's pretty minimal, Yeah, but just having had that second someone set of eyes on it is really reassuring. I think the only thing that I wonder for me personally is whether it has made me, I've become a lot more detail-oriented through the positions that I've taken on in the last few years, yeah. but I do think my partner, like, because he knows no one else is going to see it before it goes out, I think he's more careful. And he, I mean, we write in really different styles, so I think I'm someone that, like, wants to write 20,000 words and I'll carve it down to 1,000. Like, sure. I don't like that process. Yeah. He is someone that really, like, every sentence is slowly crafted yes. and it's beautiful at the end of it. It yes. takes a really long time, but it sort of just comes out fully formed. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I think it is – it's interesting to think about those different kind of methods of producing work. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, I don't think either – none is right nor wrong, but I actually think, like, me moving to the States in part was to actually, like, sort of tear myself away from that kind of – very comfortable cushion that I was leaning against and recognising it's probably not that healthy to like really never be able to do things on my own yes. or feel as though I think I could have done it on my own I just was too scared to yeah yeah. so you're having to kind of force your hand totally yeah. totally yeah. Um, so as you finished honours mm-hmm. what were you thinking you would do next? much like it felt really similar to high school where I was just like I just want to get through this grind and like go on with my life and I think there have been like a lot of points for me, at least, like, where you really feel like, and this, oh, like, cannot believe I'm going to quote the Beatles right now, because oh, I'm not who I am at all, but, like, okay. it is that, like, life is what's happening when you're making other plans, yeah. or whatever. I mean, I really always felt like, well, I just need to get through this one thing, mm-hmm. and then it's, like, totally going to come into, you know, it's going to be really clear what I want to do next. Yes. And I think that is obviously a mistake and probably not the right way to be doing things. But I definitely felt that in high school. Yeah. I think it's different in high school because you are, like, mandated in this way. You're stuck doing this yes. certain stuff. So it really does, like, once I finish, I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah. 
But I think similarly, I finished um, I finished school, I finished university, and expected actually very much remember like finishing and expecting this huge wave of relief, and within like a week, feeling like that pit of your stomach feeling where you're like, oh my god, like what do I do now? Like this is horrifying. Mm. I mean, it sounds like you've done a similar kind of degree. <laughs> Doesn't like necessarily set you up for anything specific no, at all. No. Unless no. I mean, I was I think accepted into the PhD program, but just knew. I was certainly not going to go straight into it and actually much to my parents' advice and I agree with them. They were kind of like, this was really, like, you were pretty stressed out. Oh, yeah, maybe take a break from, like, studying. Like, it's hard and a PhD is, like, a long chunk of time. Yes. And I am very grateful for that. I don't think I would have actually coped all that well yeah. with doing that. I had the same advice yeah. from my mother after I finished honours. I didn't get quite as severely burnt out by the sounds of it, but nonetheless... I just found it particularly, this is going to sound like such a weird thing to mm. say, but I found it really hard on my body, like on yeah. my physical health, totally. just constantly being over my desk. Oh my gosh, I didn't used to wear glasses. I got glasses from my final year of yeah. school. Yeah. They were like, that's what got you, didn't need them, and now you need them because you sat at a computer yeah. like 10 inches. And, and it's also that decision, because if you do kind of do university over several years, which I did as well, mm-hmm. um, and then honours and then PhD, you spend your entire 20s at uni. Yeah, totally. Um, which is a huge, it's a huge decision to make. Definitely. Um, and I think great for some people, yeah. but I definitely didn't, I, like you, I was not, there wasn't something specific, number one, that yeah. I was like, I really know what I want to study. Like mm-hmm. another a colleague of mine, Pamela, another student, did go straight into a PhD, but she had sort of been crafting it already. Like yes. she from her thesis, kind of knew what she was going to do. Yes. I had no idea. I mean, my thesis was very self-contained and was finished when it was yes. finished. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, similar. Um, okay, cool. So you're finished and you're, like, looking into that terrifying void. Yeah. <laughs> what, what did you end up doing? Yeah, so I, as I mentioned, I've had, like, a kind of frightening amount of jobs that would otherwise seem like I just can't hold down a job, but I just <laughs> was always picking up small things. I mean, yes. Adelaide's great in terms of, like, the smallness of the city means that once you kind of meet enough people, there's often little gigs, especially in hospitality and mm-hmm. bar work. So I definitely worked at, like, all the Garden of an Earthly Delight, often doing bartending there. Yeah. Um, I worked at Wilson's Organics yeah. and sold fruit and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked at Venue Ticks for a while, just yeah. selling tickets. I mean, I really was kind of doing a random assortment of jobs. Yeah. But I did sort of finish school and think, like, I really need to, like, figure out what I'm actually going to do yeah. for a full-time job. Like, I want to have a work for a bit, um, like a full-time position. So I don't even know how this happened, but I you probably know them because it's a small Adelaide. I don't know if you know Elise Adams. No. Oh, Elise Adams. I don't – I mean, I think she lives somewhere else now. I'm not sure what she's up to. But um, it was a friend who basically um, was working at the University of South Australia mm-hmm. in, like, an admin position. Yeah. And I think she had just left, maybe, something like that. I think I had done a bit of temp work, actually, while I was still studying. Mm. It was just, like, coming in and doing, like, office work. It was pretty straightforward. Yeah. So I got a position. I was sort of ended up being hired kind of through her recommendation oh. as an admin, admin assistant mm-hmm. in the International Relations Department of the University of South Australia, yeah. which, coincidentally, is where my mum was teaching as an art professor. So right. um, it was kind of funny. I was sort of on the business side of the university, and she... So I would talk about these insane, <laughs> these insane like first class trips that all the like business side of the university were taking, and she would come home and be like, "More tutors are getting cut, and like they won't give us any money." And yeah. it's a very kind of eye opening experience to be on both sides of it. Yes. 
Um, so I was hired there in January, I think, of 2011. Mm-hmm. And within six months, there was like a bunch of sort of um, configura- reconfigurations within the team I was working. Someone was sick and someone else had to leave for health reasons. And I sort of got like rapidly promoted up to this like project officer role for, I don't even really, I can't even remember because I worked <laughs> for like six months. Right. Um, but I sort of like moved up and suddenly, and I say that only because my pay went up significantly, mm. like a huge amount because it was temporary. Mm. I was going to do it for six months. Uh, and that sort of, and having done this admin position for six months, I was keenly aware, I think it was also just FYI working at Jive on the weekends and bartending from like midnight to 5am, so I was always working a ton. Mm. Uh, I was really, like, I was falling asleep at my desk. I was so bored. There was nothing to do there. It was a, you know, it's a university with a massive organisation. Mm. I don't know that this is the experience for a lot of people in, in sort of big companies, big public organisations, but like... There just, like, wasn't much work to do, and I would get it done really quickly, and then I would have nothing to do except sort of, like, reorganize the filing cabinet or, like, and I just remember being at my desk and thinking, like, I have to get out of here. Like, this yeah. is insane. Like, I cannot believe that I've gone to school and, like, this is life now. Like, you just work at university and it, you kind of do nothing and it's pretty depressing and it's not even mildly interesting. It was pretty scary, I think. I And then I got that sort of so that around that time of feeling really kind of what am I doing I was promoted up into this project officer position I also like thankfully and I think I kind of weaseled my way in there I was sent to Malaysia for like this event so that was like cool but it all felt really like this is not for me like I'm not this isn't what I want to be doing and like it wasn't like oh man if I could get up to the next position that would actually be really interesting I was like this just like isn't what I want to be doing yeah the people were super lovely I really liked everyone I worked with it definitely felt like I worked in a huge office full of um, smart women who kind of were there partly to go have children and get really good health care while they were got great maternity which I totally would do I think it's a great idea yes it's that they were really smart but there was a sort of comical amount of pregnancies happening all the time. Everyone was leaving. Strategic. Like, yeah, totally. Yeah. I think it's that's totally great. Yeah. Um, but I felt a bit young and a bit like this isn't as cool as like what I expect to be doing, <laughs> um, whatever that means. So I saved up a bunch of money, and my dad is from the states, so I have a whole dual citizenship in the states. Nice. And I was like, I just gotta like leave Adelaide. Like I need to. I don't think I wasn't engaged with the literary scene here. To, at all um, with Farron and Josh I was writing a few articles for Collect magazine so I was doing a bit of writing mm. I was really like I just lacked confidence which hasn't changed a huge amount but I just didn't feel like I was good enough to really do it mm. there also wasn't much money in it so it was kind of like I can't make this my living so I just was like and the relationship with my parents I'm incredibly close with them and I think at that point probably too close too reliant on them and I was like I need to just like get out of the country for a while Mm -hmm. so my plan was just to like go for six months and sort of see America Mm -hmm. Um, my brother was going over too so we were kind of going to fly over together and like we did a little like trip across the country and then I'd figure it out and so when I was leaving I had studied Dave Eggers heartbreaking work of staggering genius had fallen in love with it had then gone and done a bunch of research and watched his TED talk and thought like and he's so cool. Like, I am going to apply for 826 Valencia, which, or sort of the 826 Network, which are these non-profit organizations that he started up for kids' literacy. So it's like 
working with kids on their writing skills from ages 6 to 18. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is great. I've always wanted internship sounded super cool. Like, just a, like I'd never really heard about it before. And yeah. I was like, an internship? Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> so I applied for a bunch of them in around America. I think I applied in um, uh, San Francisco. There's one in Chicago and one in New York. And while we were traveling, I heard back from the one in San Francisco. And I was, I think, flying back there for some reason anyway. So I was like, cool, yeah, I'll go back there at the end of our little trip and meet with them and maybe something will happen. And I, yeah, like, literally interviewed on, like, a Wednesday. And the woman interviewing was great. And she was, by the end of the interview, she was like, totally, you've got, like, come in, start the internship. Amazing. I mean, it was pretty... I think uh, I will say, because I'm still very familiar with 826, like they've like solidified their practices and they have like structured it a lot more um, sort of professionally. Yeah. But when I was there, it was still pretty like chill and like people just invited you in. And mm. so it was like, yes, you can start. And she was like, how soon can you start? And I was like, like tomorrow, like I'm free right now. And she was like, okay, well, you know, we should probably two weeks, like come in in two weeks. I was like, okay, great. And then by the end, basically, she was like, just come back this afternoon and just start tutoring the kids. I'm like, you can just start now. And I was like, amazing. Because I had, I did not know, okay, who I did know, my dad's weird cousin who lives out in the East Bay, <laughs> who were very strange. And I tried to get away from them as quickly as possible. But I knew no one. So I was desperate to both meet people and be doing something yes. every day. Because it's, you know, it's a big kind of scary city that you don't know very well. Mm. So yeah, I started working there. I found housing. It was an unpaid internship, as a lot of literary internships are. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it was really fun. It was like working with kids, doing writing stuff. The people that worked there were super inspiring, very creative. Mm-hmm. Most of them were poets and writers, so they're outside of work. So it was like really exciting to be in that community. Yeah. You know, we started up like film series, and like, it was just very creative and fun. And I met a lot of people really quickly. It was a huge network of people. Yeah. I, of course, like spent the money I had saved up within like three months. <laughs> And it was gone. So I was suddenly like, okay, I have no money and this is an unpaid internship that's like three days a week. Um, I ended up actually taking on a role that I had sort of always been interested. I'd been doing sort of volunteering back here in Adelaide at like the Australian Refugee Association and um, at another like um, homeless shelter that was run by like a church, an Anglican church maybe. I can't remember what it was. But um, I'd always been interested in mental health and I ended up living with someone who was working for an organisation that provided residential treatment and treatment facilities and housing for uh, mental health clients. Right. So this is a classic San Francisco thing where, like, like to actually get the job to be a casual counsellor, mm-hmm. you, like, didn't have to have any skills, really. I mean, they interviewed you, and they were like, you don't seem crazy, you can go work with these people, which it was a very, like, low-funded organisation, so I think they needed help. But the idea of the institution is that, basically, they provide this treatment to clients... And it's meant to be a normalised experience, a sort of a normalised home life experience. So it meant that there, the whole kind of tenet behind it was that you you both employ people who are, do have like a um, therapy background or a counselling background and you hire people that are just like good listeners and can help. I mean, mm-hmm. I, we weren't providing like intense therapy. I'm not trained to do that at all. But we sort of ran sort of generalised groups. Um, we worked individually with clients. So I was doing this on the side. So I was working like... They would call you up basically the day before because I was a relief counsellor and you kind of covered in and came into a house. I like thought it was a really interesting program. They ran like uh, two-week acute programs. They were just in big houses around San Francisco. Acute programs, so this was two-week programs where um, someone had just come out of crisis or was in crisis 
Um, they ran uh, three-month transitional programs where it was someone who had either just come out of an acute program, moved into a transitional program, and then they also ran long-term, year-long programs, which provide assistance and sort of housing, living quarters to people who often is like jail aftercare, people who had been in prison or people who had come from a locked facility. So they had pretty significant mental health um, issues and needed sort of um, a more voluntary program that could assist them into transitioning. They often ended up in what they call in America um, a board uh, a boarding houses. I can't remember the right title, but it basically means um, it's assisted living for people low income. Uh, mental health issues where they're um, like they will hold their pills for them, they'll make sure they get fed all the time. You know, they kind of it's a lot more monitoring, they just sort of make sure they're getting looked after. So, people that maybe struggle to with their hygiene or like had other issues where they actually need a bit more support than just sort of living in an SRO, which is like those single residency occupants yes. places. Okay, so sorry, it was like a no, lot. No, <laughs> no, um, okay, so I was doing that. Uh, three or four days a week and then going into intern yeah, at right. 826 so yeah. I was kind of working with kids and then working with mental health clients was that and manageable was that a manageable load and amount of money and all of those the money was ridiculous they paid us $12 an hour which is again like America it's ridiculous it's crazy right yeah. it's just nuts so when I was a relief counselor that means you get no benefits or anything which means you don't get health care or anything so there's a the whole other level of America yeah. being way more complicated in that sense yeah. I'm just trying to think like I definitely don't think I had help. I don't know how I was covered. I think I was covered in some way. You had to pay into something. I right. forget. Because it was Obamacare, so I would have had to have had health care. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was doing that. It was pretty manageable because I could definitely say no. To, because you're a relief counselor, you kind of pick up a shift yeah. when you needed to. And generally, there were enough coming in that it was okay. Nice. And honestly, within, I was working there from maybe, just trying to think how long it was. I mean, I was offered a full-time job maybe only, yeah, like three months after I started relief counselling. So I was only doing that relief counselling for a certain period of time. And then a position came up, a full-time counselling role came up at one of the long-term program houses, the year-long program, um, a house that I had sort of relief counselled at quite a few times and really liked the people that worked there. And they actually suggested that I apply for it. I was hired as a full-time counsellor and that's what I started doing. So the internship... The counselling hours were actually perfect because you did three shifts a week for 12 hours and two shifts were during the day and one was overnight. So you did 12, you did uh, 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. Yeah. shifts. So it was kind of perfect. It meant that I could kind of do the internship and also do this thing. Nice. And I loved it. Yeah. I like really liked working there. I mm. thought it was super interesting. I, if, you know, if the burnout rate and the pay weren't what they are, which is, uh, it's a really hard job that people do for a long time mm. and it doesn't pay very well, but it really was like one of the most rewarding things I've ever mm. done. And I did it for, a, I think, a year and really, yeah, just like loved it. Got to go on like bike rides with clients and really help them. It was just like very eye-opening and valuable. Yeah. I mean, it really also like, I mean, whenever you're traveling to a new city, you're only getting sort of, you're seeing a certain perspective and seeing a slice of the city, depending on what you're doing. And this really like opened my eyes up to like really what's happening in San Francisco and sort of a lot of these people are very low income. There are a lot of people of color, people who identified as from the LGBTQ community. So it was like a very broad spectrum and you definitely were seeing who was getting impacted and who was getting social services and who wasn't. Yeah. So I just think it was like, in terms of um, sort of having a much more broad, like, social understanding. And I do think, I mean, 
Adelaide is just a, a little, I don't want to say even more conservative, but like, I just was not engaging with those communities when I lived here, and sort of, it was a really eye-opening experience in that way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think social justice, like, became a bigger part of what I was interested in. I just hadn't really thought about it. I mean, I had the privilege of not having to think about it. Yes. Um, and I was really, really interested in it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So you're, you're coming out of that position, mm-hmm. um, and then just um, kind of trying to understand how you moved out of that into kind of more language-rich work. Yeah. So what did you do after you left that role? Yeah. So I was doing that. I was very happy there. I really was very much enjoying it. I had transitioned after about a year of working at um, 826. It had become much more sporadic and I could kind of, you know, technically it was like a three-month chunk of internship that you were meant to do. So I sort of surpassed that and was just kind of hanging out and helping out. Again, it's changed a lot now, but when I was there, it was pretty grassroots. You could just kind of drop in whenever you want. Everyone was friends. It was like a very casual. And I love working with the little kids. I mean, they were like adorable. I'd go and tutor in the evenings. But, of course, underneath all that, Dave also owns and runs McSweeney's Publishing, which I had followed forever and was, like, pretty obsessed with. Yeah. And it was across the road, and it was, you know, occasionally we would have to, like, deliver something over there, the 826 kind of intern, creeping across. <laughs> and then we'd walk into McSweeney's, and it was almost, like, dead silent, but, like, with one kind of cool jam playing, and everyone looked really cool and yep. busy. And, of course, some books, and it was in this big sort of warehouse thing, and... I was like, this is very cool. <laughs> How can I get across here? Like, I definitely want to do an internship here. Yeah. And again, like, as with, I will say, like, everything that I feel like has happened in my life, like getting this an initial counselling job, it was kind of, you just meet people and then they tell you about it and then you become friends with them and it's sort of a way in. So yeah. I somehow ended up getting, chatting with one of the editors over there. I don't even know how. She was really lovely. Mm. She ran the internship program. And I sort of mentioned, like, oh, I'd love to do it. And she was like, yeah, great. Just, like, send me your resume. I mean, pretty much just do it. Like, she was, it was, again, very casual in a way that I'm guessing it's probably not the same. Mm-hmm. So I just started, like, interning there. Uh, just sort of moved across and started working there. And was doing that while I was relief counselling. I probably only did that internship for, like, a month. And it was very unstructured. And, frankly, I didn't do much work. I'm going to be totally straight up about that. I read a couple of manuscripts, but it was... At a time when they just weren't working on stuff that interns could help with all that much. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I was there for like that month and I had become friends with Dave's assistant, this woman, MJ, who was super fun and lovely. And we just, she was incredibly lovely and we just mm. got along really well. And I kind of had coffee a couple of times, but it had been like, I didn't know her very well. Mm. But she one day just like came up to my desk and was like, hey, do you want to grab a coffee this morning? I was like, yeah, sure. So we went for a walk. And she was like, hey, so I'm leaving. I'm not going to keep working here. Do you want my job? And I was like, what? Wow. And she, yeah, and I was like, uh, I didn't. And initially, I kind of was so taken aback by it. I had met Dave a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Not enough that I thought I'd created any kind of impression. I mean, like, so fast and fleeting. Mm-hmm. But I, I think being Australian definitely helped. Like, he's noticed me because I was Australian. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, so... It, Again, the 20s is pretty casual, so she was like, yeah, if you're interested, like, you should just, I'll set up a meeting with you and Dave, and you chat to him about the job, and and I remember I came, we sort of finished our coffee, and I was like, yeah, just let me think about it, uh, she was like, no worries, just let me know, so I remember sitting back at this big desk, kind of like, whoa, this is crazy, like, this is, you know, I've studied Dave's work for a lot, it's kind of like exactly what I want to do, mm. but I loved my job, like, I really was happy counselling, and I kind of was like, I actually want to be doing that. Yeah. And then I text 
my brother, who was also living in San Francisco, yeah. and I was like, I just got offered this job. I don't think I'm going to take it because, like, I love my job. I don't want to leave. And he wrote back to me and was like, are you nuts? Like, this is insane. You have to at least meet with him. Like, this is crazy. Yeah. Anyway, obviously I did and ended up taking that role yeah. on. So I quit working at the at Progress Foundation, this non-profit organization, mm-hmm. which was really hard. I really, yeah. like, it's one of the few things. I'm still friends with people that work there. Like, it was a really formative experience. Yes. Um, and something that has, like, remained in the back of my mind always is something that I'm really interested in. Yeah. But again, I sort of moved then into this literary world that kind of shifted everything. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, how long were you in that role? Uh, in the, with Dave. Yeah. Yeah, so I ended up doing it for about a year and ten months. Okay. Well, I remember, yeah. Right. It was, yeah. A, it was a, yeah, it was interesting. It was, um, it was interesting because I had, like, been so, like, starstruck by both Dave and by McSweeney's. I mean, it was just, like, in terms of the liter- literary world that I was familiar with, it was, like, the coolest thing that was happening. It was, like, very cool. And I was, like, now I'm with this cool people that, like, I didn't expect to ever, like, get to rub shoulders with. It was very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I also hadn't been a personal assistant to anyone before, mm-hmm. and it was incredibly stressful. And I think, you know, one of the things that the woman who was leaving said was, like, you should set up boundaries really early of what like how much time you're willing to give up because it can kind of like encroach on your life and you just end up saying yes to everything. Mm. Maybe because Dave's smart, he knew that I would say yes to everything. I don't know, but I just can't say no to people. I mean, it's a huge, something me and my boyfriend talk about all the time. I have real trouble like letting people down or feeling like I'm letting people down by not just helping them in any way that I can. Mm. So for me, I think the role was super interesting some really great times but also like incredibly stressful you're managing someone else's life you're managing someone else's life who is somewhat you know in the public eye Mm. and you essentially and i think this i think this happens quite often and i know it had happened with the woman before me you end up putting their life ahead of your own so they're like their well-being their happiness their kind of like needs and wants come well before yours and I don't blame that on Dave. I think I was, I, th- I think I know that he felt he was only asking what was reasonable and he felt that I could always say no, mm. but I just couldn't. <laughs> I just couldn't. So I ended up, it was something that over the year and a, nearly two years that I was there became sort of um, pretty stressful in a way that I couldn't like, I was sort of on call all the time. Even though maybe I wasn't, I just felt like I was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's <laughs> I'm seeing this sort of recurring theme of yeah. kind of almost over-dedicating yourself oh to God. things. Yeah, I, I definitely um, have an inability, A, to say no and, like, B, to ever feel like I'm doing enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm always working on a lot of projects at one time. Yeah. And I, yeah, and I really, um, I tend to, like, work on a lot of projects at one time and feel as though like oh man when I finish this I'm just gonna like give myself free time and it's gonna be amazing (laughs) that's what I need because I'm going crazy and then I get the free time and I kind of don't know what to do with myself and I immediately jump into a different project yes like I just can't do it and I've sort of as I'm getting older coming to like 
accept that maybe that's just like that might just be who you are and yeah. certainly who my mum is so like yeah <laughs> it's not uncommon but you know it definitely runs in the family yeah absolutely there's um I was speaking to Josh um from mm. City Movie the other day actually about um there's this anthropological uh theory which is essentially um it's the idea of the word spend cycle and it, one of the things that it refers to is the way that we use our time. Mm. Um, and if you're working really hard, say Monday to Friday, for instance, if you have a traditional job, you don't know how to stop delineating your time in terms of productivity. Mm -hmm. So you treat your weekends like a work day. Oh, like so between true. this and this hour, I'll do this and each thing will serve a purpose whatever purpose that might actually be yeah and that just never stops we never stop using our time in that such way. an interesting way to yeah for sure yeah. and I feel like again I mean I had sort of not had any serious long-term relationships until my current partner yeah and of course now we live together and have for the last like three years so mm -hmm. you really get to like uh have your like personal self like reflected back at you in yes. this way that can be really uncomfortable yeah um because you're kind of not I don't want to say being watched all the time but you're suddenly hyper aware of like oh yeah I do do this thing that I yeah. thought was super normal and yeah. like someone's pointing out that it might not be that healthy yeah and one of the things we talk about all the time is if I don't do enough like over the weekend I'm like oh I just like wasted it yes. and he's like you just relax like you're just allowed to like not do anything yes but I have this like everything has to be valued yeah, yeah totally yeah. totally yeah um, um so did you leave that um personal assistant role uh from burnout yeah so essentially um i did it for a year and a half i was sort of promoted pretty i mean it was it was like hilariously stressful and i was definitely i was promoted in a way halfway through when i was in new york working at like, the new york times office trying to help dave get like a piece in the new york times magazine finished because he was like in south america somewhere and it was like horrifically stressful and then i remember i got this huge email from him and i I mean, we got it off and it was fine, but it had, there had been hiccups. One being that, like, my Gmail just, like, wasn't working. And I had, he had been, like, online in some, like, tiny cafe in, in um, like, Bolivia and had been trying to get in touch with me. And I had been responding to all his emails, I thought, and then suddenly realized, like, they were all just sitting in my outbox and, like, not going. Like, I was getting emails coming in and they weren't coming. Anyway, I nearly threw up. I just remember being at a library and being like, oh, my God, like, I've been trying to do this. And it's like, he's got limited time on the internet. It was just very stressful. And I remember getting an email from him and being like, oh, cool. Like, he's just going to find me because, like, this has gone terribly. And it was like, hey, you're doing a great job. Like, we want to give you, like, a promotion and, like, a huge pay raise. And I remember just being like, wait, what? Like, this was terrible. Like, this was awful for me. Like, <laughs> So, I, I mean, I'm saying that more as, and again, a thicker thing throughout my career has been that I think I'm doing a really terrible job and I'm yeah. probably not doing as badly as I think. Mm. Um, and that's something I struggle with and, yeah, has sort of come up a lot. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, so about July of whatever year that I left in October and in about July of that year, there was a new bookstore opening up in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and this seems like really sneaky and I wouldn't do it now, but I met with who was going to be the manager of the book. So he was like a friend of a friend. Mm -hmm. And he was meeting me to sort of say like, hey, we want to get some interns from McSweeney's and see if they'd be interested in working at the bookstore. And I talked to him for 20 minutes. I remember having coffee over the road from McSweeney's and said like, hey, like forget the interns. Like I'd love a job there. And he was like, don't you, <laughs> don't you work full time for Dave? And I was like, I am like looking to transition and I would love to, because of financials like I can't just quit and not have something I need to be and I've always felt like that I do not not like I do not 
like not working. Yeah. Yeah. So I started working at this bookstore like evenings and weekends while I was still working with Dave and did that for about three months. Whoa. And then we, I actually came to Australia for the Melbourne Book Festival with Dave. Like that was, you know, again, super cool opportunity. So for how stressful it was, like he wouldn't, I don't think have come to Australia necessarily, but because he knew it would be a cool thing, he was like, you should come too and we'll go together and like we'll do these events and it will be cool. Yeah. There are some 100-story um, building and the Sydney ride, uh, the Sydney the Story Factory in Sydney. Mm -hmm. He sort of linked to both of those. So it was like a great opportunity for him to meet them and do all this stuff. Yeah. So we ended up coming out. But again, incredibly stressful, really hard work. And I sort of, I think that was in uh, September, October. And I sort of, by November, was like, I can't do it. I'm just so tired. I can't, like, you need to have fresh someone fresh coming in and, like, helping you and seeing things with a clear set of eyes. And he was, to his credit, like, incredibly understanding and sort of said, this job tends to have expiration date on it it just is a lot of work and yeah. I can completely understand why you want to leave so we left on good terms and I literally just was emailing him this morning because I've been helping him with a research project so that kind of it all keeps sort of rolling together yeah. nice. um, so I was working then I took the bookstore full-time in November so I transitioned from I kind of told them like I'm quitting in two weeks bump my hours up mm -hmm. and they did because it was the Christmas period nice. um, so I worked at a bookstore for six months wow yeah that was a change of pace huge <laughs> and of course because I refused to be happy ever I immediately was like oh it's like not interesting I was like I'm bored like I'm just sitting around every day also it paid eleven dollars an hour so it was like I was back down to like making absolutely no money and yeah. was kind of freaking out about it yeah um yeah sorry it's like oh, no 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 it's know. good it's really good um okay so um, fairly immediately dissatisfied with the bookstore. Oh, yes, because I'm just the worst. Yeah, <laughs> I just hate that I, in one way it was great, I met my partner who I'm still with now. Oh. We fell in love with the bookstore. It was very sweet. <laughs> uh, he's the greatest person I've ever met, so it's awesome. Um, and it was great, and it was really interesting having been in publishing to be on the other side mm. and get to talk to people about books. I read more during that time than yeah. ever before because I had time, but also, like, and I'm sure this is true here, but I, I don't know the book selling community here as well. But um, they're like some of the smartest people that work in bookstores. Like yes. They know so much. Yeah. It's like such a huge resource of knowledge about the most sort of um, contemporary writing that's happening, where the interesting stuff is yeah. coming out of, what publishing houses to keep an eye. I mean, I really feel like much more than working at McSweeney's, I really like understood literature from working at the bookstore. Yes. Yeah. Um, my friend who was running that one now owns a bookstore in Point Reyes, which is sort of up in the north part of um, of San Francisco uh -huh. and, or of the Bay Area. And yeah, like they just are so, I mean, there's a whole other world that exists that I wasn't aware of yeah. that like, and I'm, I'm not talking about sort of like casual book sellers. I'm talking about people whose life is book selling and they yes. do it for like, 30 years and it's, yeah. they own a bookstore and yeah it's just it was super inspiring so that was awesome to to be a part of for sure yeah. but it's also glorified retail right like you're just working with people and I actually I really like customer service so I like quite like that part of it mm -hmm. but it also a I was making the money and b I was sort of uh well I was heading towards 30 and was like oh maybe I was like 28 29 and I was kind of like what am I doing like this is not a career like yeah. I'm not going to end up owning a bookstore. You know, I wasn't sort of, I certainly didn't move into it with the idea that it was going to be something long-term. Mm. I definitely moved into it because I was like, I have a nervous breakdown if I don't, yeah. like, keep doing this. So I just took a break from it all. Yeah. Mm. Nice. Um, okay, so how long were you there? 
so yeah, I started in July and I think I was hired somewhere else by the by March of the following okay. year. So maybe eight or nine months, but not all of that was full time. You know, yeah. part of it was just with Dave. So only like five months super full time. Yeah. Okay. It was the only I will say the nice part about it, and we talk about this all the time, it's like almost every other job that I've had has been coming into an organization where the kind of story around the company is that it used to be great three years ago. And I sort of was like, it sucks always coming in when people are like, 10 years ago, this place was amazing. Yeah. And now it kind of is falling apart or like now it's different than it was or it's too corporate now. And this was the first time we literally like built the bookstore. Like we mm. built the shelves, we put all the original books up. It was really fun being part of like the original team. Yeah. Um, just because you really felt like you had like ownership. Like I really felt like a part of a community mm. in a way that I kind of hadn't before because we were the beginning community. Yes. So yeah. that part was awesome. Mm. Um, but yeah, also couldn't stay. Also my partner and I were like, we probably shouldn't keep working together. It's just like we're going to drive each other a bit crazy if yeah. we're like working together and see each other every day yeah. outside of work. Mm. So yeah. What was the next job? So then I moved. Um, I was interested in editing because that's mm. what I'd been doing and there really aren't many publishers in San Francisco. I, you know, McSweeney's is one of them, but everything's in New York and I wasn't ready to move because I just met my partner. Um, so I applied at 10 Speed Press, which is an um, imprint of Penguin Random House. And they are an illustrated book publisher. They do um, a lot of the um, big like cookbooks and photography books and pop culture books. They, in America, were the ones that published Marie Kondo's The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Only I didn't work on it, but I um, only know this because of, like, <laughs> we would, when we were doing, like, uh, reports of, like, how the publishing scene was going or, like, how our year had been, they always had to take that book out because they were, like, it makes us look like we're really successful, but it's just this one book that yeah. sold, like, a million copies. <laughs> so it was kind of funny. Um... So yeah, I got hired as an assistant editor at mm -hmm. 10Speed um, and it was really interesting. It was definitely like I actually didn't have that many editorial skills beforehand. I didn't know the lingo, like mm -hmm. the work I had like worked on a bunch of Dave's books, but in a far more like top level developmental editing, you know, I'd go through his books for continuity or like give him suggestions on how to move things around, but I definitely wasn't like line editing. I was doing a lot more of that at 10Speed. Mm -hmm. um, I will say the structure of 10Speed, and I don't know how it is for like many or all publishers in America, but I do think there's a significant shift from how it works in Australia where there tends to be like a managing editor that, um, sorry, publisher that acquires the book, a managing editor that kind of like facilitates how all the books get looked after, mm -hmm. and then project editors that sort of take the book and maybe, maybe do an editorial pass, but really what they're doing is like ferrying it out to contractors who then come in and do the like, Big developmental edit, the copy edit, the proofread. So they're kind of more coordinators, mm -hmm. it seems, out here. The interesting thing about Tensby and what was great, because it's quite a boutique agency, I think it was like 35 of us working there, mm -hmm. which was like seven editors, 10 designers, four production, you know, marketing, whatever, mm -hmm. was that you got to acquire, like, encourage me to acquire books. Mm -hmm. I was doing the developmental editing. So it was like, you really were like ferrying an entire book through the process. Nice. Um, and it was super interesting. Mm -hmm. They weren't the kind, especially because I had just been working at the bookstore where it was like very literary, we were reading like really interesting experimental work. This was like incredibly commercial, interesting, but sort of, I think I always was like, oh, this isn't like exactly what I want to be doing. I found a way, you know, <laughs> found a way to complain about it to my partner. And be like, this is exactly what I want to be doing. Um, also the pay was better, but still pretty rough. Yeah. Um, and 
but I work with incredibly smart women who I stayed in touch with. And I mean, they were like, I think I wasn't giving them enough credit for how smart they were. I really like learned a lot from the women that I worked there. Mm-hmm. Um, they worked really hard and they were just like incredibly smart about like structure and how things work. And it truly was like, I definitely learned the most there. I think of, of a lot of places that I've worked just in terms of like really how it all works together. Yeah. Um, and I think it was probably the most like professional place that I had worked in terms of, you know, they're part of him on Random House. It was like very scheduled. Um, it was nice that it didn't feel too corporate because it was still sort of, we were in there, you know, Penguin was all in New York. So we were kind of like the cool Bay area guys that got to like hang out over there in the sunshine and like edit books. But yeah, it was, it was like a really eye-opening and interesting experience. And definitely like I've taken a lot from like working there into all my other jobs. How long were you there? How long were you there? I was there for another year and a half and I had really enjoyed it. It was also pretty stressful. Book editing can be stressful in terms of, you know, I think the benefit of this sort of model that they had set up where you would acquire, edit project manage and see through the whole process is really cool for especially for someone starting out like me I think the hard part is that to trying to acquire books is pretty competitive um you have to have a lot of good ideas but you also have to have the time to really like survey the landscape and be talking and meeting with people and that's really hard when you're also trying to edit books and make sure they're actually running at the same time so um it definitely was quite stressful I think all the things that have come up through like my school years was like I'm a huge perfectionist mm-hmm. and I think the thing that I can take away now that I'm slowly getting better at is that like mistakes just get made and you have to like accept them and move on and I think I really really beat myself up about some of the mistakes that happened that like the senior editors want you know it wasn't even my project and we'd make a mistake and I'd be like I can't sleep. I'm like so anxious about it. Yeah. Um, and I think, especially in print publishing, this feeling that like once it's sent off, like that's it. If there's a mistake in it, it's staying in there. And yeah. I found that like incredibly stressful. I think mm-hmm. as a perfectionist, it is like it. I just really struggled to like let go of work. I would be thinking about it all the time. And I think what I struggled with most was that I was thinking about books that I really enjoyed working on, but didn't feel like super attached to in terms of my like personal interests mm. you know so it's kind of like I'm really getting stressed about these things that like I don't even know that I'm that invested in sort of what they mean for the world like I'm, I'm sort of more interested in this other literary field I sort of feel like I'm going to be that stressed out about it I would like it to be about something that I like truly believe in yes, if that makes yes sense. it does yeah um, um is that what drove you to move on yeah I think a big part of it so I think it was a combination of the feeling is that wasn't like I wasn't quite like loving the books enough and was also really paranoid about how I was going to move up because mm-hmm. I feel like I was there a year and a half and I was like I'm not sure when I'm going to be able to like level up and how long that's going to take and I think something that I've struggled with always is because I've come into things, I mean, slightly later than other people. Mm-hmm. For example, there was a woman who was sort of my mentor there, who was only a year older than me, but had been at Tensby for like six or seven years mm-hmm. and was now senior editor and was like really high up. And I think I sort of was like, oh my God, I'm going to be like 40 by the time I get anywhere in this company. And that was freaking me out. I wasn't moving quickly enough. 
So I think there was definitely that. I actually think in the last a person you were speaking with that I was listening to, you were talking about what is important to you in terms of your career versus your life and like whether your career should match up with your personal values or you like just work and then your free time is where you get to like engage with the things that you really believe in. And that is a conversation my partner and I have all the time about like what is most important to you. Do you want to be someone who like works to uh, lives to work or works to live? Yeah. Um, and I think I was definitely sort of feeling as though I want to do something that's a little more aligned with like who I am as a person. I also want to make more money because they're not paying me enough money. And yeah, and that fear of like not being able to move up quickly enough. And and I honestly, I mean, looking back. <laughs> I feel like sometimes this, I just was like terrified there would be that my books would come out and there'd be so many mistakes that they would find me. Obviously, that wouldn't have happened. I get sort of paranoid that like I'm just gonna leave other goings, but like they still really like me. I haven't screwed anything up. I'm gonna get out of there, which is sort of crazy in hindsight. I mean, I don't know why I get so hung up on that, but I sort of felt like I, I think I can't do this. Like I don't think I'm good enough. So. Um, I applied for the job that um, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art was reopening after having been closed for three years. Um, And there was like an editorial position going there. And a big, another big wedge of it was like, I was sort of um, not even consciously being kind of led into print publishing, which is an exciting industry, but you know, people talk about it in a dying industry. I don't agree with that now, but I think at the time, you know, it was like, three or four years ago, I was a bit paranoid that, like, I'm really, like, closing a lot of doors in terms of just working on print stuff, and I actually had in the back of my mind that I might be coming back to Australia at some point, and was sort of, like, the publishing world in Australia is even smaller, like, I really am kind of, it's going to be hard to find work there, it's the only thing I've done is print publishing, so I think there was also a part of it was, like, I need to, like, diversify my skill set and, like, figure out, it sounds too professional, but, like, um... (laughs) I need to figure out a way to, like, come back here with, like, a broader range of skills. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, did you get that role? I did. So I was successful in getting that role, and then, I, of course, I came to 10 Speed and said, you know, I've been offered this role. It's this much more money. And I had actually had – I really liked my boss, but I definitely had a conversation with her, like, a month or two beforehand, and it sort of said, like, I think I need to be making more money. Like, I just don't know if I can keep living on this wage. It's not even that, like, I mean, I think the job is worth more, but I also think, like, I might have to quit just because, like, I can't keep paying rent at yes. this place. Which they were, you know, it was a low salary. They were, she was making a lot more money than I was. She, yeah. she knew that. So I sort of felt as though I had given them an opportunity to sort of, like, bump me up. And then I got offered the role, and I came back into the office and said, like, I've been offered this role. I did it on a Friday, I think. And she was like, oh... We don't want you to leave, so can you wait until Monday and I want to see what I can get from our publisher here and, like, come back. So, basically, I came back on Monday and they matched the salary and were, like, we're going to promote you to a different role. And it was a really tough thing where I was like, oh, I do kind of want to stay here and this would be really cool. I honestly think I felt really guilty because the other people at the museum were so nice and I... I was a classic topic thing where I was like, I don't want to let anyone down. And I, I've already kind of said yes to this job at SF MoMA. So like, I'm not sure. I don't want to have like strung them along. Mm. It was quite a long interview process. Like I had like three or four panel reviews and a proofreading test. Like it was kind of pretty serious. And I also sort of felt like if you guys weren't able to offer me a promotion 
just because you knew that I was doing a good job and like you liked me and you're only doing it now that you know that you're going to lose me. I kind of, I mean, I Googled it. I was like, should you stay with a job that like doesn't recognize that you're good and only offers you a promotion when you get poached? Which I actually think is pretty common, but yeah. you know, everyone was like, no, definitely not. You need to go follow your dreams. So I was like, okay, I'm going to leave. I think it's the right decision to make. Because I saw, you know, the museum super exciting. Mm-hmm. My mum's an artist, so there was a part of me that was like, oh my god, they're going to be so pumped. Like, they're going to love them working in a museum, which is really nice. So I did it. I moved into the museum world. Wow. Which was very different, again. Yeah, and I, I assume kind of starting a little bit from scratch. Yeah, definitely. It was, yeah, I mean, they provided me with a lot of warning, and in hindsight, when my boss hired me at the time, she was definitely like, are you sure you want to take this on? This is like kind of a lower position than what you have right now, even though it was going to pay me a lot more. She was like, you know, there's a bigger hierarchy and I was essentially at the bottom of a four-person team. Right. It was fine, but, it, you know, I think I was at that point sort of so ready to move on and I kind of decided that it was going to happen that I was like, oh, my God, of course, it'll yeah. be fine. But that definitely kind of is what happened. It was, I think, I look back at the experience now and think of, you know, it was um, really getting to work with, like, incredibly smart curators mm-hmm. and work in a museum is very interesting and cool. And, like, the people that work there are highly overqualified. Everyone that works in the museum is has a master's degree and is there, has their own practice or is, you know, everyone that works with is incredibly smart. Yeah. And um, I think in terms of, like, people that shared a bit more of my own, like, social justice values, um, the the team that I was on, we were unionized, so um, that was like something I really took away from the experience of being part of a union that did, um, we worked really hard to get like wage increases and better opportunities for lower staff members. Mm-hmm. And that was actually one of the things I really took away from it, but sort of separate to the actual working experience. But yeah, so I think that was really incredible. Mm-hmm. The work was a combination of sort of really detail-oriented stuff that I actually don't think is my strength ironically I think it has improved a huge amount by working there but it was sort of like short sentences and really it was like sort of very close editing proofreading mm-hmm. um, I did get to do some like long form writing which was really great we had a member magazine that I got to work on so that was super cool but yeah it was a pretty dramatic shift in terms of autonomy mm-hmm. um, you know I had a kind of nice-ish desk at 10 speed and it moved into sort of like uh, you would think the museum would be like super cool and like and it was like cubicles it was kind of like working at a bank sometimes it felt right like the museum below you was incredible and then you were in these pretty stuffy kind of depressing offices um i know so i think one thing that i can say that's come out of my career so far is uh things can look really great from the outside and they're very different once you get in there and i think that has been both like quite a disappointment in a lot of ways mm. but also a really good reality check of how much pining I do seeing other people's jobs and what they do and being like oh, this their life must be incredible mm-hmm. I mean social media doesn't help us with that but I think it te- especially in terms of career recognizing that like every job is a job I mean it's ne- you know like it is hard work and it's you know it's it's not sort of whatever photos you see online or whatever you kind of imagine it's going to be it's a bit of that and then it's a lot of just like grind, grinding it out yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, how how long were you in that position for? So I was in that one role for almost two years. I ended up staying there for quite I mean, quite a while, but it felt like a long time. Yeah. I just try to think. Part of it was the feeling of 
we started talking, my partner and I were starting to talk about coming to Australia. Yeah. So a big part of it was definitely like, we weren't sure what we were going to do next. Mm-hmm. I will say I don't think I was like all that happy at the museum. The one thing I did like, I will say when I was working there was like, you really could leave most of the time. You could just leave the work at work. Mm-hmm. And I was able to do things um, outside of that. Mm-hmm. One of the things I actually ended up picking up that I did for one of the years was I was the managing editor of the Best American Non-Required Reading Series, which um, has uh, like 15 Bay Area high school students read a bunch of interesting fiction, non-fiction, poetry, graphic novels throughout a year with a guest editor, mm-hmm. who was Sheila Hetty when I was doing it. And then I was the managing editor, so I facilitated all the dialogues with the students. I worked with Sheila, and then we edited and put the book together and published it. So it was, like, super cool. But, again, taking on the person, the guy that offered me the position. Again, like, so many of my roles have been through knowing people and yeah. people kind of offering me opportunities, which is both, like, super lucky and incredibly privileged, but has made me incredibly um, – uh, what's the word that I want to use – I don't know, like, my self-confidence already struggles, and I think it has made me feel as though, well, I'm only getting it because I know this person. I'm not actually, like, good at it. I just got it because... So I think it really... Undermining. I think it has undermined, like, my sense of how capable I am of doing things Mm -hmm. because, of course, I'm incredibly grateful and I feel very lucky to have the opportunities, Mm -hmm. but I also feel like, well, like, anyone could do it. I just Mm -hmm. got lucky and... And I do think career is that luck. I mean, I do actually think right place, right time has a huge mm-hmm. impact on the, your trajectory in yes. general. I mean, mine has definitely all been about like meeting someone or a coincidence or like something just lining up at the right time. Yes. Um, yeah, I really believe in that. I, I, certainly in the arts career, I, there aren't that many people that you talk to who are like, I knew I wanted to do this exact thing and I just like worked my way to doing the exact thing I set out to do. Mm-hmm. Most of my friends were like, I got here through this very circuitous path. Yes. So, so yeah, so it enabled that kind of, like, work-life balance enabled me to take on the Best American, mm-hmm. which, again, like, was way too much work. The guy who'd been doing it before me was working very part-time as, like, a boat builder and, like, taking sailing trips and stuff. So And, and he's amazing. He's now the managing editor of the Believer magazine. So, he, I mean, I love Daniel, but... Yeah, it was just, and he kind of warned me. He was like, you sure you want to do this when you're, like, working full-time somewhere? And I was like, oh, my God. And it's so easy. Um, <laughs> of course. Um, I should also mention that while I've been doing all of this, I am the fiction editor for The Lifted Brow, so I was also editing fiction. Um, I think there is an element of self-sabotage in taking on a lot of projects so that if they don't go successfully, you can always say, like, well, I had, I was working on a time. Yeah, I actually think that is something that I have been trying to like investigate more closely for myself because I do think it's certainly not the way I want to keep living my life. Mm-hmm. I find it hard to get out of, but I do think that even if I won't admit it to myself at the time, I do think part of the reason I always take on too much is a some kind of like get out of jail free card that like absolves me of any hardcore responsibility. Yeah. Even though when I'm doing it, I feel terribly responsible and guilty all the time. So I don't know if it does yeah. help me as much as I think it's going to. But yes. Yeah, but it, in the beginning, before you start working on it at least, yeah, that's for in sure. the back of your mind. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, okay. So you've kind of got three plates spinning at that point. Yeah, totally. Um, all right. And um, what kind of happened next? Um, yeah. I should also – I was also <laughs> – 
just sort of thinking about all other things I was, doing, I was also like freelance editing and taking on any book projects I could from TenSpeak. They still were using me as a proofreader and a copy editor. And so I was, it was a bit, I won't say I was doing them all simultaneously exactly at the same time, but I was definitely just had my finger in like just a stupid amount of pies. And mm. like, of course, it was stressful. And I, it's not until you kind of look back at it and go like, oh my God, what were you thinking? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's really hard work. But then I was from, uh, there was a bunch of changeover in my team and I ended up being promoted to assistant managing editor. Mm-hmm. But I only did that for three or four months before we left for, we went to Europe for a few months, but then before you moved back to Australia. Yeah. I took it because it was a really good opportunity for a number of reasons, but the museum was going through a big transitional phase. So it was also like, it was a lot of movement happening within the team and within the whole department that I was in. So it was a really great experience. I actually kind of would have liked to have stayed longer to see what would happen. Mm-hmm. But I did, was working with a boss at the time who, I sort of wanted probably her position. I wanted to be able to be running things a little more, but you know, I think working at a large organization really isn't probably for me long term. I think the I did miss the autonomy. I think the nice part of like there's a I was just talking with someone who's moved from a very small organization to a large one, and she was sort of mentioning I'm loving like I just like do my little thing and then like I'm done and I. Definitely, it's not my problem if it doesn't go well. There's like 20 people above me that have to take that yes. on. And I think I was kind of the flip side of that where I was like, I just like to get anything done here. It's, you know, and I, I think it's very typical of museums. I think it's typical of like big organizations, mm-hmm. but like there's 10 people that need to approve it. And like something that seemed very like a minor decision just took like a horrendously long time to do. Yeah. And I think especially working at McSweeney's, it tends to be to a certain degree, but definitely McSweeney's that feeling of like, I mean, Dave was great about being, you want to do something? Like, you just go do it and make it happen. Like, mm. figure it out. And mm. I think I kind of like that, getting to wear many hats and do different things. And yeah. I think I also really like helping other people sort of solve their problems. So mm. I sort of, and wasn't necessarily encouraged always to do that. I think when you're at an organization where like everyone has a very slivered slice of a role, that you kind of can't be encroaching on other people's like workloads too much. Mm. Um, so yeah, so does that bring us up to now? Is yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. then we moved. Yeah, right. <laughs> we moved. We packed up our whole life, and after seven years of um, we were living in Oakland at the time, and yeah. moved moved back here. Wow. Yeah. How did it feel? Um, what well, was super fun because we got to go to Europe for several months. I will say we had my partner had some family issues, and so it was a pretty stressful year last year. And, certainly not very good for him and me by association. We definitely needed a break. Mm-hmm. Um, I think actually, interestingly, all the jobs I've worked in America, you know, your holiday time is usually two weeks, mm-hmm. 10 days of paid leave a year. So it was really hard to do anything fun. Yeah. <laughs> and because everyone I know lives in Australia or, all my, you know, family and friends, um, every holiday, I probably went back to Australia once a year. Mm-hmm. So I'm someone that likes to travel a lot and definitely just couldn't. I mean, uh, my, my holidays were taken up with coming to Australia, which I'm not complaining. That's a great holiday. But I sort of was like the classic. I went to Europe when I was 20 and was like, oh, my God, I'm going to come back in two years. And then I was like, okay, it's been like almost 12 years. Yeah, That's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And 
interestingly, like when we left our jobs, I quit my job and the museum was like, cool, that's great. They were trying to get me to do some freelance work, but actually I would have been fine to do it, mm-hmm. but they couldn't work it out because of payment or whatever through the US to Australia. Mm-hmm. But my partner went to quit his job and he's a, um, a creative strategist, uh, a writer essentially, um, for a branding company. And they actually gave, he went to quit and they said, we'd like to keep you on, you can work from anywhere. Um, so what that meant was like a month into our vacation, he began working again, which was great because he definitely is, has been the financial kind of um, rock that both of us have leaned on. But I think it made me, again, my personality being like paranoid that I'm not doing enough. It kind of like really, most of the time was great. And then half the time, the rest of the time it was me being like, oh, I feel so stressed that you're working. I'm not working. Like, I hate this. Like. I wish we, I think it would have been easier if we were both not working. I think I would have liked to have been working a bit, although I'm sure I would have found a way to complain about it. I'd be doing that anyway. Um, did, did you have to stop the other two kind of smaller roles? So the Best had? American had finished. Yeah, you have to be in America. So I had hired someone else to take mm-hmm. my place for that. Um, the tends to be work, to be honest, I didn't follow up with it. They mm-hmm. sort of said, reach out if you want to get some more work. And I kind of never did. Yeah. Actually, looking at it now, I sort of didn't. Maybe I just sort of wanted a break for sure. I mean, this was the first break I've had in working in like 12 years or something. And it was really nice in that sense. So in hindsight, now I'm like, I should have done more work. No, no, it was good to take the break. Yes. Um, uh, And then uh, actually when, just when I arrived in Australia, Dave reached out to me again and was like, hey, I've got some research work. Do you want to take it on? And I was like, definitely. And then of course, then got hired for a full-time job. And actually it was... I just told him the other day, like, I actually have this full-time job, so I'm going to be doing this in the evenings. And because he's a decent person, he wrote back saying, like, you shouldn't <laughs> – don't do both. He's like, it's fine. I'll find someone else to do this. You should take a break. Like, just do your regular job. Yeah. And it was, again, like, how ridiculous that I had to wait for him to – you know, I should have just said, like, I can't keep doing this. It's too much work. Yes. But it wasn't until he was like, I give you the blessing. Like, free. please, like, be free. Yeah. <laughs> and he's so nice about it, you know. So, yeah. um um, how did you get the job you have now? Yeah, I mean, I was coming back to Melbourne and was sort of like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have a nice community from the Lifted Brow of, like, writers and editors. A lot of them work similar to you, like freelance work and kind of cobble together a lot of different stuff. Mm-hmm. A few of them do lecturing as well at the university. So I kind of came back and didn't have – I had hoped – I also had hoped this three months off would be, like, eye-opening and I would – the path would open up for me of like here is what you should be doing it definitely didn't at all (laughs) still was like fuck I was really because there's a part of me that's like maybe I should get out of literary stuff altogether do social work or do something different I definitely spent oh like six to eight months of last year like looking at university courses that I could apply for I I really want to go back and study I just don't know what yet so I kind of didn't know what I was going to do when I got here but sort of figured like my friends are in the literary community, I'd probably start with something there. Mm-hmm. And then someone just, like, sent me a link to the Stella Prize job and were like, this probably is a good fit for you. You should just try applying for it. Yeah. And that's what I did. And, yeah, I was offered it. And I started. I just started Monday. So I was going to say. Yeah, brand, brand, brand new. Yeah. yeah right. And it is, again, like, a very small organisation. It's, like, three or four people in it. So wow. it's back to kind of um, you doing everything, which I am really enjoying because yeah. I was – feeling very like yeah like confined in another mm-hmm. job and now I kind of get to really run things but 
also coming with that is like, oh yeah, I have to run things. And like, if they don't go well, like it's my fault that they didn't go well. Yeah. But so far, still psyched. <laughs> Talk to me in a month. Maybe I won't be. But no, I am really excited. And, yeah. Um, and it's nice to be working again. I um, I think the other thing that was both like enlightening and kind of I don't know, like maybe not as maybe not terribly surprising, but was realizing that like I definitely tie my identity into my work like I feel like I am a valuable worthwhile person when I'm contributing something mm. I really found I mean like but again so lucky to have the opportunity to take time off work and just travel mm. but I think it was like oh this is a good reminder that like I really do like working I yeah. like to work yeah. even when I'm complaining about it I'm actually very happy to be doing it and not just because I get paid to do it. I mean, obviously that's one thing, but I actually like the community. I like problem solving. I like working with people. Yeah. I genuinely enjoy doing it. Yeah. yeah. What are you thinking you want to do next in the next sort of few months, few years? Yeah. Well, the nice thing about sort of having traveled quite a bit is that I feel very like nesty and like mm. I'm happy. I feel really good about being settled. I think because when I was living in the States for those last seven years, I had never planned to stay that long. My parents could attest to that they thought I was going to be off like six months. Mm. So I have spent um, every year kind of reassessing and being like, what's next? Like, should I stay? Should I go? Mm-hmm. Which can just become very exhausting when you feel like you can't fully like put your roots down or like settle. Yes. So for the moment, I feel really like, oh, a sigh of relief of like, I just don't have to worry about that for a while. I'm just going to stick around and see what happens. Having said that, short term, you know, I'm really happy to be doing this stellar work. I'm excited about sort of, it, it definitely engages with all the things I believe in, women writers, how we can support them, programs for young women. But of course, I think there's always a part of me that, um, Want, definitely wants to go back to school and keep studying. Mm-hmm. Just having the opportunity to talk with you, especially about like the social work stuff that I was doing and counseling, like clearly there's something unresolved there for me that I really feel passionately about. I think I'm sure a lot of people say this, but like I do really want to help people, and I think I have to work out how best I can do that. I think what I'm learning more and more is that. You know, I was raised by people who, who um, value creativity and artistic practice. I think I said this at the beginning. It's like a really important thing. And that I think I've always looked up to anyone pursuing that with sort of doe eyes. and like, how do you do it? How are you so creative? It's so amazing. I sort of put them on a pedestal and have tended to value those sort of um, that sort of skill set and that ability more than anything else. And I think what I'm trying to focus on and kind of train myself to be better at is recognizing what, like people like soft skills, like being good with people and being able to help other people and that you can be creative within that and not necessarily be writing a novel. You can be creative by helping someone figure something out. And I think I I sort of want to identify like what community can I do that in, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think it can be easy to sort of default to communities that you feel like are in, in great need and that you feel like you can make a sort of very quick impact on and a very direct impact on. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm also interested in, you know, my dream career is something where there is like 
long-term impact by research and then like short-term impact by engagement every yeah. day. And that's pretty broad and I don't know how I want to apply it, but I'm learning more and more that I think that is maybe the direction I need to be heading in. Yeah. yeah. So we're kind of wrapping up, mm-hmm. but is there anything that we haven't talked about that you feel like is really important? Hmm. That's a great question. I want to be sure that I do like acknowledge all the kind of uh, leg ups that I've had. You know, I do think that one of the skills that I've had to learn a lot from putting myself into situations like going overseas and not knowing anyone, I do think like the most valuable thing that I've taken out of my working career is like how to work with other people, how to listen to them and understand what they want um, and be kind and generous and kind of always look for the best in people's abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that, um, especially hearing you talk about what you want to do next, like you can be taught so many of these other things. And it was actually a really interesting thing that when I was hired at Tenspeed, my boss, before I got the job, was talking about, and she was sort of asking me why I wanted to do things and what my skills were. And at some point she said, we can teach you how to edit books. It's like a thing that you just learn and get better at. She's like, well, we can't teach you is like how you're going to fit in to the group here, how you're going to get along with people, how you're going to engage with authors and actually make them feel welcome and happy with the work that they're doing. And I do think the one thing, I don't know, like that I've taken away from like my career trajectory so far is like to not underestimate how important that can be and that even as you're kind of chipping away in different ways, so you might be doing a career in this direction and then in this direction, that is one skill that like just continues to be helpful in whatever you're doing. Yeah. And I think I devalued it for a long time. It's like being like, oh, anyone could just like talk to people, but I think it's a skill that you tend to learn and like hone a lot more personally than you do through like a, a professional skill set of like learning how to write or edit. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, that has been like something really important to like come to terms with and be sort of um, happy with that you can be like, I've actually grown that thing and it's not tangible and necessarily like you could write it down in the same way, yeah. but it has been beneficial to all jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. You did it. Did it feel okay? It felt, I felt like I just talked nonstop. Yeah, which you did. Is, That's the whole idea. <laughs> which is, I feel like you've had uh, maybe more conversational things with other people. I'm sorry. As usual, if you've got any questions for me or for Clara, just reach out to me on our social. We're on Instagram and we're on Facebook as well. I've been Saren Bell. This has been Get Close Panic. I'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>